Welcome to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, where we evaluate educational efforts to improve the lives of families, schools, students, and teachers. We talk about teaching a lot on this podcast, and one thing that makes teaching different than pretty much any other job, teachers are always on stage, 180 days a year, and with a repeat audience. That means that they need material or lesson plans, and they need them to be high quality, aligned and engaging, but they need them every day. And to differentiate instruction, to meet the students they have in their class that are at different levels, they need even more material. Now, one might think that this material is actually laid out for teachers, ready-made, but for the most part, that's not so. In my teaching days, I knew the hunger for lesson plans. Today, teachers hungry for content turn to the internet, where there's a dizzying and growing array of online materials they can access. The question is, are those materials any good? Shockingly little is known about the quality of those resources. That's why I asked Dr. Morgan Polikoff of the University of Southern California to talk about his recent report with educational consultant Jennifer Dean, The Supplemental Curriculum Bazaar. Is What's Online Any Good? In it, they analyzed online supplemental materials for one area, high school English language arts, from three of the most popular supplemental websites. And they came to some sobering conclusions about the quality of the work they examined and what that might mean for the sea of content on the web. Morgan, thanks for coming on the report card. My pleasure. So to start out with, just set the stage for me. Where does the demand for these online teaching resources come from? I mean, what materials are provided to most teachers and why are they looking for more? Sure. Well, the demand comes from a lot of different perspectives. So one point is that Teachers are often given core curriculum materials, core textbooks to use in the classroom, but they're not always given core materials. And in fact, high school ELA is one area where teachers are probably less likely to be given core materials than, say, elementary mathematics. So that's certainly one part is teachers literally don't have a core curriculum. They have to create it either alone or with colleagues. So when they come in to teach at the beginning of the year, you know, they might have a scope and sequence or these other curricular documents, but there's just not enough material there that in, tells them, go through these steps and it will fill out yeah, any, I mean, I th- any large portion of your year. I think, it, I think it very much depends on the school and the district. You know, in other research I've done, we, you know, we've done these deep dive case studies in multiple districts, and you just see huge district to district variation in the extent to which districts provide teachers with these core curriculum materials. Gotcha. So that's certainly part of it, is just having materials at all. Another part of it is you've got materials, but you feel they are inadequate in some way. And so, you know, oftentimes that means they're inadequate in terms of maybe alignment to standards in some area. They're inadequate in terms of the extent to which they offer supports for teaching high and low achievers or English learners. Maybe they're inadequate in terms of your perceptions of the extent to which they engage students. So they might, you might think them as too dry. So there's all these reasons that your core materials might fall short. And then a third reason is just that teachers like to do this and have always done this, right? American teachers supplement before they used to do it with the old editions of the textbooks in the back of the room or the worksheets that were handed down from generation to generation. Now they've got the internet and, you know, three million resources on, on Teachers Pay Teachers. Right. This isn't really new behavior. This is just a new way to get material to provide to kids. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that this is actually sort of almost a core or defining feature of teaching in the United States is relative to lots of other countries, teachers actually have much more curricular authority in the U.S. than they do in most other places. Yeah, for good or ill. 
what do we know about where they look for this material? So there's been a number of state and nationally representative surveys done by um, RAND and other organizations that have found that, first of all, virtually all teachers supplement, you know, like depends how you define it, but it's like 90, 95 percent of teachers say they do it at least a little and like three quarters of teachers say they do it like once a week or more. And those surveys also identify the main sites. So Google and Pinterest are huge players. If you're talking about sites that are specifically focused on teachers, then Teachers Pay Teachers is by far the biggest elephant in the room. There are a bunch of other websites that, you know, we mentioned in the report, but you can see the average teacher is reporting that they're going to multiple different sites to get materials. So they're like searching the internet. And there's some differences between, say, Google and Pinterest, which are really like ways to look or, or search for sites. Teachers Pay Teachers and these other sites, which are actually sort of like a single site that amalgamates all these different options from teachers, right? Right. Yeah. And, and actually, Amazon is also getting into this space. And I, I don't think it's been launched quite yet. I actually don't know where, where they are in that process, but that's going to happen. And you have to imagine that they're immediately going to become one of the big players sure. as well. As soon as that search goes up, lots of people will be looking on it. So before we get into your study and how you looked at some of these organized sites, What's sort of the state of knowledge prior to this study? What, what do we know about the quality of these resources? And again, there's an ocean of content out there. So the scope of what we know has to match this, you know, just untamed wilderness that, it, you know, there's no way to actually organize all this and understand who's using what. What do we know about the quality of this content? I think we know close to zero about the quality of what's on these websites you know, my sense of what we know about supplementation is basically it happens a lot. We know what are the major players. We have some reasonable sense about why teachers do it from some survey data. And that's close to it. There's some small qualitative studies that look at how teachers make choices mm -hmm. on these sites and things like that. And some big data kinds of analyses of like which materials sort of rise to the top. But quality is actually really difficult to analyze, right? You have to actually look at the things. You have to decide what constitutes high quality. And a website, again, a website like Teachers Pay Teachers claims to have 3 million resources on it. So how you're going to create a, a quality rubric and apply it across all those sites at anything even remotely close to scale is, I mean, it almost seems impossible. Yeah, it does. Well, you took a swing at it, or at least at nibbling off the first bite. How did you approach this? So the idea was basically... Let's identify some of the sites that teachers are going to a lot. Let's identify on those sites the top materials, the most downloaded or most used materials. And let's just start there, right? And the thinking being, well, you would imagine, although this isn't necessarily true, that the top most used materials on the top most used sites are probably close to a ceiling for the quality of what's out there. Or even if not... Again, they're what teachers are using, so it's important to know about those materials. Right. So whether it represents the highest quality on that website or not, it's what's getting used a right. lot, so it's worth looking at. Right, exactly. And so, so we identified three websites, Teachers Pay Teachers, Read, Write, Think, and Share My Lesson, um, based on some surveys of what sites teachers were using. Then either working with the default sort algorithms on the websites or with the cooperation of the sites themselves, we identified the top most used materials. And then we had created and applied a rubric with expert raters who are experienced ELA teachers who have maybe done work with assessments before and who kind of know, know what they're doing. And we just set them loose and we said, OK, rate these materials along these dimensions that we think are important. Tell us what you think and then also give us sort of your overall holistic impression. 
what can you tell us about what's good and bad about these resources? Right. And I think it's worth drawing out a little bit that these sites that you're looking at are likely to be some of the higher quality stuff, right? There's a couple of other ways that I've seen teachers will draw out content. Some they'll like follow other teachers, like they'll look at their blogs or Instagram. And so that might have some quality control because this is a trusted person, right? I don't know whether that person's good, but the teacher obviously thinks they are. But then a lot of people are just skimming for ideas on the internet, and these aren't going to have rubrics. They're not going to be necessarily aligned, at least some portion of them. But these organized websites like Teachers Pay Teachers, they have as part of the organization some quality controls, like an idea that they should be standards aligned and that we should have some method of indicating that. It seems to me that these websites just have a number of ways that they organize the submissions on them to have an eye towards quality control that a lot of the internet content might not have. Well, I think that they vary considerably in that regard. So Teachers Pay Teachers is pretty close to an open market where teachers can post more or less whatever they want. I actually don't know what kinds of criteria Teachers Pay Teachers uses to evaluate content, if any. That's sort of one extreme, right? right? It's basically anyone can post anything, and if anyone wants to buy it, then, right, that's the market. It's like the, Craigslist for teacher lessons. Yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, it's, it's like a bazaar. The title of the report is kind of apt for that site. And then kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum is something like Read, Write, Think, which was one of our other websites, where it's an organization, and that organization really creates the materials. And they're all of a standardized format. They all kind of look the same. So you would imagine there's a little bit more sort of at least control over consistency. And then kind of share my lesson is sort of in the middle where most of the materials, at least the ones that we reviewed, are produced by just a handful of people. They are an open market as well. But so I think there's a broad spectrum there. Okay, that makes sense. So how did you review the material on these sites that you selected? So we created a rubric that had a bunch of different dimensions on it. You know, I'm not going to list all the dimensions sure. here. I think there were like 28 different things that we asked them to rate each material on. But they included sort of a few buckets. So one bucket was really about content. Was the content standards aligned, meaning to what extent did it sort of reflect major shifts in both Common Core, but also other college and career ready standards, which are sort of broadly similar. Another bucket was about sort of usability. So did, did they have the necessary, you know, components or resources for teachers to kind of be able to pick it up off the shelf and use it right away? Or would teachers have to do a lot of background work? There were some other elements around other things that we think are basically important for curriculum materials. Like there's a lot of talk these days about that curriculum material should be knowledge building, right? That like English language arts material shouldn't be about, you know, skills. It should be about so that at the end, students can like demonstrate that they've actually learned something about a body of knowledge, be it science or social studies or, or whatever. Sure. So that was one dimension. Things around supports for diverse learners was kind of another thing that we right. thought was really important. So and when we say diverse learners, we mean both racial, ethnic, and gender diversity. And also we mean like students with disabilities and English learners and other groups that often yeah. need additional support. The wide variety of students that these are going to be serving. After all this reviewing, what are your top line findings? I mean, what do you think? So there are a few ways in which our reviewers felt that the materials were okay. So I'll start with that. I, you know, we'll, start, we'll do good news, bad news. Okay. So in general, our reviewers felt that the texts, the actual things that students would be reading according to these materials, the texts were good. They were high quality. 
often, you know, if there was a weakness, it was that often they were below grade level. Um, And I can talk more about why I think that is in a little bit. So that was one thing. But in general, they thought the texts were at least mostly worth reading. And another thing was that I sort of came into this thinking, you know, these are going to be like worksheets full of typos, like a bunch of errors. And generally speaking, that wasn't the case. You know, that's a a ludicrously low bar, but but they exceeded that bar. But the production value was above. The production value. Yeah, for the most part, you know, 90 plus percent of the materials were were perfectly fine to look at, didn't have errors. All right. All right. So that's the good stuff. Okay. So the bad stuff. Well, I think the overall finding is, you know, after reviewers rated these things on 28 different dimensions, then we just asked them, okay, zero to three, what do you think? Are these materials terrible? Are they great? Should teachers use them or not? And so sort of two and three was, okay, these materials are good enough that teachers could use them. And about two-thirds of the material, 64% were rated as zero or one, meaning that our reviewers thought really teachers shouldn't be using these materials. So a little over a third of the materials they thought were good enough to be used. And this matters because you didn't pick materials that were just on the website. You picked the ones that were getting used a lot. Right. We picked the most downloaded and the most used materials on these websites. And yeah, it's not super promising that teachers are sort of separating the wheat from the chaff. Right. So overall, our our reviewers felt that these materials probably shouldn't be used on average, although, of course, there are some good materials in there. And then, you know, in terms of why, well, you know, you could just go through the dimensions and pull out some of the reasons why our reviewers thought they shouldn't be used. You know, one is the materials often would say, oh, I'm aligned to these 25 standards. But our reviewers would say, well, actually, you know, maybe you're aligned to half of those or probably you're aligned to like less than half of those. So that was one problem, that they weren't really aligned to the standards that they claim alignment to. And that's a problem if, you know, teachers are searching by what standard, and then they're picking up these materials and they're thinking, oh, this is really going to support me in teaching this particular standard. And to some degree, I can understand how that might be a weakness of these materials, because the teachers creating them aren't actually expert in starting with standards and moving, but rather in making content for their classrooms and then trying to tie it up to these standards that they've been handed down. Absolutely. And I think also the incentives, you know, of a website like Teachers Pay Teachers, where you're trying, I mean, if you put stuff on there, presumably you're trying to make money, right? You want things to show up in searches and, you know, they don't show up in searches if you only tag them with the two things that they're aligned to. Absolutely. So that was one weakness. There were weaknesses about uh, the assessments in the materials. So oftentimes we really felt, our reviewers really felt like, okay, at the end of these materials, you know, there should be some kind of assessment that really captures the extent to which students have mastered the content in the material. And most of those assessments fell way short in a number of ways, not the least of which is that they didn't really give teachers sort of rubrics and scoring guides to evaluate student work. So they might have a decent task, although oftentimes the tasks weren't that great, but they wouldn't even really support teachers in evaluating that work. So sometimes the tasks weren't that great. And even if they had good tasks, they often didn't have good evaluative guidelines. Right. Another thing that I think is important to note here that I noted in reading the report is that you know, when I think about these things, I often think, oh, well, they're getting a lesson plan. But actually, a lot of these things are a, sort of like a unit, right? Like there's several days or two weeks worth of work. And I should have mentioned that before. So, you know, like it doesn't apply as much with share my lesson and read, write, think. But teachers pay teachers includes a lot more than just lesson plans. Like actually, if you go on there and you search by the most used materials, very few of the top used most used materials are lesson plans. They're like, worksheet creators or binder organizers or things like that. So we we specifically restricted our evaluation to unit and lesson plans. 
and for Teachers Pay Teachers in particular, we evaluated two-thirds of the materials that were unit plans and one-third that were lesson plans, and we forced that. Um, we also made distinctions about free versus paid because that's another important distinction on that's Teachers right. Pay Teachers. So as far as you know, the notebook organizers on Teachers Pay Teachers may be excellent. They could, you know, I will say my mother-in-law is a devotee of Teachers Pay Teachers okay, good. for its binder organizing materials, and so... I think at least, right. yeah, Go on. I wouldn't want to have to organize, create binder organizers. That no, would kill me. Indeed. So other things that came up, you know, I mentioned that thing about building knowledge and our reviewers just really did not feel that the materials built knowledge. Again, about two thirds, a little bit less than two thirds of the materials did a bad job at that. Our reviewers felt that the materials didn't really provide super cognitively demanding tasks, meaning tasks that really require students to demonstrate complex thinking. They tended to be sort of more lower level kinds of skills. Our reviewers, if you ask about sort of where the materials did the worst, it was in terms of teaching diverse learners, so providing supports for diverse learners, right. both on the sort of EL students with disabilities front and in terms of the extent to which the material sort of, again, represented like the cultural diversity of American classrooms. So I had thought that maybe teachers would go to these materials because, you know, their core textbook really focused on exclusively white authors and you've got a classroom that's really diverse and sure. you want to go find lessons that, or, or our teaching force is very white and right, you, you maybe don't have the expertise in that and you want to find lessons or units that are really going to resonate with diverse student groups. And our reviewers did not find that um, to be the case really at all. So those were some of the other areas in which the materials fared pretty poorly. So let me ask you sort of a tough question. What do you think these submissions by teachers, and I, I assume they're not like a, uh, a submission by a random sample of American teachers, but it's a bunch of submissions by a bunch of teachers that is used by a teacher. So it reflects something about acceptable levels of practice across schools. I mean, should we draw anything from the fact that this is a collection of artifacts that reflects what's going on in schools and the quality doesn't seem to be very high? There's a couple quick responses to that question. First of all, it is a difficult question. First, it's a very broad question. It is. I mean, I think that one point is that this is just what's written down and we don't know what's being implemented. Sure. We don't really know what's being implemented in classrooms hardly anywhere, anywhere right. right? I mean, except for the very few schools and districts that have a real tight control over curriculum, we have no idea. So that's one answer. I think another answer is teachers clearly want to use these materials to some extent and think that they're important or think that they're adding something. Because it doesn't require no effort to go to these websites and identify these materials. So it's a very difficult question, really. Like, should we tell teachers, no, you can't do this thing? I mean, that's kind of the question at the heart of what you're right. asking. And I think that you could tell teachers that. You'd probably have to give them something in exchange for that. And I'm not exactly sure what that would be. I think one one idea, is, which I think we talk about in a little bit in the report, but which I've sort of more firmly believe is that this is really a place where districts and maybe states can and should play a stronger role. So I don't really think it's appropriate for people to just say to teachers, you know, you can just implement whatever sure, you, want you figure in the classroom. it out. Because they're public dollars, these are, you know, other people's children, and we should want to deliver them a high quality experience. So I think that 
these organizations, districts or county offices or whatever, could play a role in helping curate, right? Teachers are going to, teachers are always going to want to say, my core curriculum material is inadequate in XYZ ways. But rather than saying, okay, it's inadequate, so go to Teachers Pay Teachers and do whatever the heck you want, we could say, you know, we recognize it's inadequate in these ways, and here's five resources that we think are pretty good at solving that inadequacy. Choose from these five. Right. So fewer choices, which may actually save them a lot of time in the long run, and more curation around those resources. That, yeah. I mean, that, you know, that's my, that's my suggestion. That does require some work. Teachers might not like that. I don't know. But I mean, I think that my sense is that Yes, teachers want to be able to adapt their curriculum to the perceived needs of their students, but they don't want to spend hours and hours searching through stuff online. They don't want to implement crap in the classroom. That's not what teachers want to right. do. Let me ask you about the rubrics. Did you apply some of these to some district curriculum, to some of the curriculum that is handed to teachers? And I just wonder how that might fare on the same sort of evaluative criteria. That's a great question. The answer is no, we didn't. And I think that that is something that certainly could be done and probably should be done. I mean, the task is so Herculean. It is. And then when you talk about a core curriculum, you've got a whole year's worth of material in there. So you just immediately, you know, when we started designing this study, you just have to make a lot of compromises. Yes. And so I would love to know in what ways core materials stack up on uh, these dimensions. I think we could learn a lot from that, and that might provide some suggestive guidance for why teachers are going to these websites. I don't think that's going to fully explain why teachers are not using their core curriculum materials. But I, would be, I wouldn't at all be surprised if the core materials were also inadequate in some ways. Right. And, of course, it, there's a good thing. You mentioned this about sort of the nature of teaching in American schools is that we give a lot of liberty to teachers. We just give them a lot of instructional autonomy. That can cut both ways. But whether the, what is provided is fueling that autonomy because it doesn't provide enough or whether that autonomy would be exercised no matter what we gave them is yeah. still a pretty open question. It is. And I mean, I think whether that autonomy is a good thing or a bad thing, I think depends in large part on which teacher we're talking about, right? There's some wonderful expert teachers out there, super seasoned veteran teachers who you know, probably uh, having a core textbook and telling them you should pretty much follow this is actually going to make their teaching worse. Right. But then there, I think about, you know, a first-year teacher who's coming into a class, which we have a lot of first-year teachers. A lot. Who come into classrooms and they're just trying to keep control and, like, get through the day. And on top of that, you're saying to them, oh, well, I'm not giving you a textbook. Go pull together your own thing. For that teacher, I think, you know, almost certainly having something good from the start and giving them some support to implement it is going to make their teaching better. So if you were to put all American teachers on a distribution, how many of them are better off under this high autonomy system versus a low autonomy system? That's a, a, a very difficult question to sure. answer, but I think is, you know, an open question. Yeah, but you could certainly say that for a bunch of them, it's a For a lot of teachers, yeah. So what about the responses that you've gotten from this study? I imagine... You've probably gotten some responses from the organizations that you evaluated. Yeah, so the websites were offered the opportunity to provide a response, and I know at least two have. I'm not sure about all three. And you can go on, on the website and read the responses from the websites. And I think, you know, mostly they kind of just dodge the question, sure. which you would, you know, wise teachers pay teachers <laughs> need to bother with us. They're a behemoth. You know, and, and they make the point, which I think is a fair point, that 
a lot of teachers use this website. Clearly, a lot of teachers like the materials on these websites. And they're sort of saying, you know, the market indicates that this that we're providing a valuable service. I, and it's certainly valued. That's unarguable. Yeah, yeah. Just by the use, there's a demand for it and so forth. So there's something there. Right. I, I, I didn't get from the websites like a ton of introspection about quality, which, again, I'm not sure that you would expect that. And so when you think about what do you take away from this, like, suppose you thought that it would be a good idea to, like, try and improve the quality of the materials on these websites. I'm not sure that existing websites are going to be the ones to do that unless they're forced in some way to do that, because I'm not sure what their incentive would be to do that. Right. And if they did, they might no longer be the leading website because another website would pop up without the quality. What Teachers Pay Teachers is doing right now is definitely working for Teachers Pay Teachers. Right. We've gotten those kinds of reactions. I, you know, I got I got some reactions from people on Twitter. Um, and so, for instance, Emily Hanford, who wrote that important piece about how teachers are teaching reading, right. she retweeted the study with what I thought was sort of a pithy and a little edgy tweet. And she got a bunch of blowback from teachers who said, you know, listen, I love this website. I go to it all the time. It provides me with X, Y, Z. I think usually that one of the main things that came up in those Twitter responses to the extent that I read them was about supplementation, rather was about differentiation for, you know, in particular for like students with disabilities or students who are far below grade level, where the core curriculum just really is totally inappropriate and you need to do something to provide something to those students. Now, another way of interpreting that same comment is, I want to lower my expectations for these for students. some students. Yeah, for right. some students, which is, a, you know, kind of a separate issue. But I mean, clearly there are some people who are really defensive. And, you know, another thing that I saw on, the, on Twitter was teachers would say, kind of like you said earlier, oh, I really love X teachers materials. And right. they would tag X teacher and X te- and, and say thank you. And they would provide this effusive praise of this teacher's materials. And you could see sort of what you were talking about earlier. And I think that that is true, that some teachers really do like to follow other teachers and use what other teachers are doing, which that I actually don't think is necessarily a bad model. Yeah, it's interesting. And I never thought that I would say that a social media influencer would be a good thing, but it actually could be good it could be. if they were Good instructional yeah. folks. Yeah, that's really fascinating. What about user ratings? Do they use user ratings? I mean, that's a different kind of evaluative thing. And you would also think that that would pull the wisdom of teachers. Do all these sites have user ratings like Amazon or? So two of the three sites have user ratings. Read, Write, Think does not. We didn't report it in this study, but I'm actually doing other work on Teachers Pay Teachers. And, and we've pulled down the user ratings for like 500,000 materials. And, you know, uh, Teachers Pay Teachers has a scale from one to four, which we're all familiar with. The average user rating on Teachers Pay Teachers is 3.98. So by definition... (laughs) So they don't have a rating system. They're not providing useful information about quality. And we didn't... We looked at the relation... Well, we tried to look at the relationship between the number of stars that they got and what we rated them as. We couldn't do that again. There's no variation. But we did look at the uh, the number, uh, the relationship between the number of downloads or the number of ratings and our ratings. And for one or two of the websites, we did see some evidence that the number of ratings was correlated with our ratings, which is to say that the more used material or the more rated materials, which is kind of indicating more use, were also slightly higher quality. And, and there actually is some previous research that suggests that 
when teachers go to look at materials, they're much more likely to rely on the number of ratings or the number of comments than they are on either the, the content of those comments or the, the average rating score. Yeah, that's right. And those are smart teachers because anyone who has used Yelp, right. knows you need a number of ratings before yes. you can trust that number. In light of these fairly disappointing findings, right? I mean, it's not what we want to see. What do you think is to be done? Is there something that these websites should be doing? I mean, it really, there's just the question of if they are putting out there a bazaar for quality, must they also assume the responsibility of quality control? And could they even do it? I mean, is it, is it even possible? Well, again, these websites were created with different purposes in mind and are run by different organizations. Right. And so Teachers Pay Teachers, you know, is an organization that I think has less incentive to want to change than one of the websites that's maybe less used or maybe that's run like Share My Lessons run by AFT, the right. American Federation for Teachers. So presume and, and Teachers Pay Teachers is a for-profit entity. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. We're at AEI, so I wanted you to say that. That's fine. Okay. No, that's fine. So I think that my personal opinion is, yes, the website, you know, I mean, if I was running a company and putting out materials on the web, I would want them to be high quality. And so I would, to some, to the extent possible, try and put in quality controls. Again, with 3 million resources on Teachers Pay Teachers, it's not obvious how you do that. That's right. You'd have to hire a lot of people to be evaluating really these materials. Would. So with these other websites where it's much smaller or more niche or more curated, you know, it seems feasible. It's, it could be part of their model to try and identify quality in different ways, whether it's through our rubric or through their own rubric or try and demonstrate quality if they think that our system is flawed in some way. There's also sort of, so that's kind of the supply side. There's the demand side, which I think, again, you know, has to do with, I don't think it makes sense to try and get 3 million teachers to evaluate materials in a different way. Right. But I do think that organizations like school districts, which there's still 10,000 of, but at least that's you know, a smaller number could be involved in this in some way or county offices of education or state departments of education. Like Louisiana has really moved in all in on curriculum as a reform lever. And they could, you know, and they have the Louisiana guidebooks. The great thing about that is they can actually update it and they can actually provide the supplementation sort of in the materials right. in a way that you really can't in any other state in the U.S. where basically the state says to districts, use whatever core materials you want. We're not going to provide you really much support in implementing those. That's a huge, it should not be overstated how big a vacuum that is that enables all this to work. I mean, school systems across the world tend to not organize in such an open-ended way that create this really huge vacuum. I just know when I was a teacher, I had experienced this wondering well, what am I supposed to do next week? Because it's the first week of school. And this, what I have been given, won't carry me very far. Mm -hmm. And it is amazing how the bazaar that you, you're looking at here pops up in response to really a pretty big vacuum of content. I wonder, do you think that ELA is going to be different from Algebra 1 or Earth Science because it has just more open-ended curriculum and and less of an obvious scope and sequence? Yeah, I think that, that you you would expect to see differences across subjects and across grade levels within subjects. I mean, I think, you know, if, if you're asking me for my opinion, I think that mathematics, you could imagine that there's like a few different best ways to like organize the teaching of mathematics right. 
in terms of within and across grades. And maybe with the LA, that's not as obvious. Maybe, you know, again, you might want to like tailor reading lists to the students in your class or the students in your school. You know, ELA, to a large extent, for better or for worse, is more about skills and less about content. At least that's the way that it's taught in American classrooms currently. And so, you know, if there's not like a a content goal for ELA, like, you know, yeah, we want you to teach reading, but also by the end of this, they need to know about like whatever the Harlem Renaissance or something like that, then then it's not as obvious how you sort of constrain an ELA. So, yeah, I agree it's going to be different across subjects. And ELA is kind of maybe the most extreme example. It's also interesting that this is a more individuated activity for teachers, right? So once upon a time, one might think, well, I need to go to my peers for ideas and for supplementary materials and to get other lesson plans. And that would be engaging in a back and forth with colleagues that could be sort of like a, you know, a learning environment that you participate in. Whereas the online marketplace enables you to get those those products without some of the supports that might have once come. And so I wonder if this actually makes teaching possibly more of an individualized and non sort of social mm-hmm. profession. It's just one of the things that I worry about with the, you know, online activities in general. Yeah. But also with teachers in particular who started out in this sort of lonely place alone in their room. So Well, that yeah, I mean, that certainly could be the case. Does It's not necessarily the case. Right. Um, you know, I, I've done some work recently in a, in a California school district where they sort of recognize the inadequacies of the core materials or they let teachers recognize the inadequacies. And then they say, OK, you could definitely supplement, but we want all the teachers in the school to be doing the same thing. Right. right. And that's a and, very different activity than yeah. what we're talking about. Yeah. But if there's no organization across that school to bring them together to do it, then you'll have this sort of atomized response for supplementing. And where are you going to go for that? It just seems the easiest thing to do is to hit up Pinterest yeah. or yeah. Teachers Pay Teachers. Let me ask a, a last sort of big picture question, and this is perhaps a hard one too. But I wonder if the advent of these systems actually mean that sort of the mechanisms for school improvement that district leaders and state leaders have are actually harder to wield because there are so many options online for teachers to individuate what they're doing. Again, I think that's always been the case, but might the ability of district and state leaders to sort of improve instructional quality be harder with these systems rather than easier? I think the answer to that is yes. The survey evidence suggests pretty clearly that, that, that if anything, this trend is increasing teachers' use of supplementary online materials. And if there is an effort to or a desire to try and rein that in in some way, again, people don't like having freedom and then you taking that freedom away. They don't. And so I think that would not necessarily go over well. That said, I firmly believe that teachers want a quality core curriculum. I also firmly believe that teachers, like other people for the most part, don't really want to spend a lot of time doing something that could be done more easily, right. although actually a lot of people don't seem to mind that. And that that there are ways to structure school and district policy to help teachers to do this thing, which they're going to want to do better and more efficiently and in ways that improve teaching and learning. If you don't believe that, then it's really hard to think about how you would improve. I mean, I think it is, it's, it is very hard to improve instruction at scale. If the last 30 years have taught us anything, that it is, is that. So 
I think it's increasingly difficult. And and I think that states and districts are really going to have to take this seriously, that they don't want this to sort of spiral to a place where it really is even more every person for themselves than it is already. Yeah, it seems like if they don't actually get a grip on it, then they will continue to lose their grip yeah. on it. Yeah. Well, this is a fascinating study. Again, you can find it at the Fordham Institute website, and we'll have it in the show notes for this episode, the Supplemental Curriculum Bazaar. And Morgan, thanks for coming on the report card to talk to us about My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the report card. And I'd like to especially thank our guest, Morgan Polikoff, for joining me today. Thanks also to our producers. They make this podcast possible. That includes Nathan May, Tyler Hoover, and Gage Hurley of Liquid Media. If you have comments, questions, or topic suggestions for future episodes, drop us a line at edpodcast at AEI.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, go on Google or Stitcher or Apple and rate the episode. It helps other folks find the show. Signing off for this week, I'm Nat Malkus. <laughs>